Book two, chapter four, part ten of History of the Inquisition of Spain, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug, Perth, Western Australia. History of the Inquisition of Spain, volume one, by Henry Charles Lay. Book Two, Chapter Four, Conflicting Jurisdictions, Part Ten. After the fall of Inquisitor General Nitard, there was a bustling attempt to check the enormous evils admitted to exist. In sixteen seventy seven, Carlos the Second deprecated the abuses common, both in excessive charges and enforcing his pious subjects to submit by censures which deprived them of the consolations of religion. He declared excommunication to be illegal in matters connected exclusively with laymen and temporal possessions, and forbade its employment, a command which he addressed to the Suprema in 1678 with directions to enforce it, and which he repeated in 1691, but without effect. Then a more comprehensive effort was made to effect a radical reform. In 1696, Carlos was induced to assemble what was known as the Junta Mania, consisting of two members each of the councils of state, of Aragon, of Castile, of Italy, of Indies, and of Orders. The decree creating it recites the disturbance and the interference with justice, the continual collisions and competencias between the Inquisition and the courts over question of jurisdiction and privileges, and the necessity of establishing some fixed principles and rules to avert these troubles for the future, and to preserve the holy office in the love and reverence of the people, without its interfering in matters foreign to its venerable purpose. The junta was to meet at least once a week, and it was furnished with materials from the records of all the councils, through which it obtained a thorough insight into the evils to be remedied. These labours resulted in a memorial known as the Consulta Mania, drawn up by Dr. Joseph de la Desma of the Council of Castile. It constituted a terrible indictment of the abuse, by the Inquisition, of the temporal jurisdiction bestowed on it by the sovereigns, with ample proof of flagrant cases and incidents. Then followed a consideration of possible remedies, of which the most indispensable was declared to be the prohibition of censures, which were so formidable that no one could resist them. Persons arrested for offences not of faith should be confined in the royal prisons, to save them from the indelible disgrace of the secret prison. The recurso de fuerza should be admitted when excommunication was used in temporal cases. The fuero should be withdrawn from the servants and commensals of officials, whose insolence gave occasion to arrests and censures causing dissensions that scandalized the whole kingdom. It was admitted that familiars now gave little trouble, save in Majorca, where there was no concordia, but the salaried officials were the source of infinite contention, and they should be put on the footing of familiars. A grievance of the greatest magnitude was the interminable delay in the settlement of competencias, during which prisoners languished in confinement and excommunicates could not obtain absolution. This could be averted if the concordias and royal orders were enforced. As all attempts to curb the Inquisition had proved useless, and in spite of them, had it continually increased its abuses, the ultimate remedy of depriving it wholly of the royal jurisdiction might be found necessary. But meanwhile, these milder measures might be tried 
in hope of relief. These proposed remedies, it will be seen, were moderate enough, and in no way limited the Inquisition in its ostensible functions as a preserver of the faith. This was the most formidable assault that the Inquisition had experienced, coming as it did from the combined forces of all the other organizations of the State, under the auspices of the King, but it was easily averted. Llorente tells us that Inquisitor-General Rocaberti, working through the royal confessor Froilan Diaz, who was ex officio a member of the Suprema, and also Rocaberti's subject in the Dominican order, succeeded in inducing Carlos to consign the consulta to the limbo in which reposed so many previous memorials. The manner in which this was effected was simple enough. In 1726, Don Santiago Agustin Riol drew up for Philip V a report on the creation and organization of the state councils, in which he states that the consulta was submitted to the Council of Castile for its action. This was delayed by the illness of the governor of the council. When he returned to duty, the matter was forgotten, and the consulta disappeared so completely that when Philip V called for it in 1701, no copy could be found in the archives, as appeared from a certificate furnished by the archivist. This narrow escape did not teach moderation. In 1702, the Valencia tribunal refused even to join in a competencia over a case in which it entertained a suit brought to collect the interest on a censo by the widow of an Aguazil mayor as guardian of her children. It was in vain that the regent of the Audiencia pointed out that under the Concordia of 1568, the widow of an official only enjoyed the fuero as defendant and not as plaintiff, and that the children had no claim whatever, and cited precedents that had been so decided. The tribunal was stubborn, and would not even admit that the question could be carried up to the Suprema and Council of Aragon for decision. It was not long after this, however, that the Suprema was obliged to admit that reforms in the methods of the Holy Office were essential. In its Carta Aquadata of June the 27th, 1705, is embodied the rebuke of the recklessness with which the tribunals undertook the defence of their officials, resulting in the universal complaints of the abuse of its jurisdiction, so that it was popularly said that everything was made a caso de inquisition, to the disrepute of its officials and their families. Therefore, unless the jurisdiction was indisputable, the Suprema must be consulted before assuming the defence. Amical adjustments must also always be sought, and friendly relations be maintained with the royal officials, thus avoiding competencias which ordinarily arose from passionate conflicts over trifles. These were wise admonitions, to which, as usual, scant attention was paid. But in time the tribunals were made to recognize the change that had come in with the Bourbons. There was a highly illustrative case in 1720 at Toledo, where Don Pedro Panagua, contador or auditor of the tribunal, received in October twenty sacks of cocoa from Cadiz. In the intricate details of the Spanish system of internal imposts, it will be impossible now to say whether he had observed the formalities requisite in the transmission of merchandise but the local authorities assumed that there was a violation of law, and also an infraction of quarantine, imposed in August, owing to an epidemic in Marseille. The corregidor was prompt. At 2 a.m. of the day following the arrival of the cocoa, he searched Penigua's country house, and at 9 a.m. his townhouse, and sequestrated the cocoa. The inquisitors responded by imprisoning the civic guards who had been employed. 
A fortnight later, another visit paid to Panigua's house showed that five sacks of the sequestrated article had been removed, whereupon he was confined in the royal prison. Then the inquisitors proceeded against the corregidor and alcalde mayor with censures, and aggravated them so energetically that in twenty-four hours they had an interdict and a cessatio a divinus in four parishes of the city. These acts of demonstrations, however suited to the seventeenth century, were out of place in the eighteenth. As soon as news of them reached Madrid, hurried orders were dispatched by the Suprema to remove the interdict, absolve the officials and release the guards, and when the formal report came from the tribunal, the orders were repeated, with the addition that the senior inquisitor should start for Madrid within twenty-four hours. Prior to receiving this, the inquisitors had written to Inquisitor-General Camargo, lamenting his abandonment of them and the dishonour inflicted on the tribunal. They blushed to be accomplices in this ruin, and they tendered their resignations. The answer to this was sending the senior inquisitor of Madrid to take charge of the tribunal, with orders to the two remaining inquisitors to remain in Madrid, but on learning that they had obeyed the first orders, they were allowed to remain in Toledo. How strong had been the pressure exerted on the Suprema to produce this action may be inferred from a protest in which, a month later, it poured forth to Philip V its bitterness of soul. The corregidor had violated the privileges and immunities of the Inquisition. The inquisitors had been perfectly justified in their action, although too speedy in aggravating the censures. They had been humiliated, while the corregidor and his underlings were boasting of their triumph over the Inquisition, and of depriving it of the rights granted by the popes and the kings of Spain. The Suprema therefore asked that the senior inquisitor be allowed to return to Toledo, that Panagua be released by the hands of the inquisitors, that his cocoa be restored, and that the corregidor and alcalde mayor be duly punished. This accomplished nothing, and two months later it again appealed to the king for the release of Panagua and the restoration of the senior inquisitor, but this time it professed its zeal to see that in future the tribunals should practice more moderation. The lesson was a hard one, but it had a still harder one in 1734, when Philip decided that a salaried official should be tried by the ordinary courts. Step by step, the old-time privileges were being curtailed. Soon after the accession of Fernando VI, some trouble rose at Lorena over the taxation of familiars, it seems to have been aggravated in the usual manner, and when it reached the king, it was of a character that induced him to issue a decree, October the 5th, 1747, by which the Council of Castile was given jurisdiction over the officials of the Inquisition. This called forth a heated remonstrance, dated November the 1st, which must have proceeded from the Inquisitor-General Prado y Cuesta, for no other subject would have dared thus to address his sovereign. The writer tells him that the decree is unworthy of his name and his faith, nor is it well that the world should see him, in the first year of his reign, discharge such a thunderbolt against the holy office, such as it had never received since its foundation, leaving it prostrated by the shock. He affirms before God, and would wish to write it with his blood, that the service of Jesus Christ and the prosperity of the king and his kingdoms require that the decree be returned to the royal hands, without a copy being allowed to remain. Although this decree was not effective as to the salaried officials, the Inquisition was falling upon evil days. It no longer inspired the old-time awe. It was no longer striving to extend its prerogatives, 
but was fighting a losing battle to maintain them. A writer of about this period deplores its decadence. Its commissioners and familiars serve without pay, and the only reward for their labours and the cost of making their proofs of limpieza is the exemptions of pure honour granted by the kings. But now scarce one of these is observed, and no fit persons seek the positions, although they are much needed, for they are not a tenth part of those allowed by the Concordias. There is probably some truth in this, for Inquisitor-General Prado y Cuesta, in appointing, at the request of the Tribunal of Valencia, Fray Vicente Latore as Calificador, or Censor, asks why, when there are so many learned canons and professors in Valencia, who formerly were eager in seeking the position, it had now fallen so greatly in estimation. It was difficult for the Inquisition to reconcile itself to the tendencies of the age, and several cases about this time, in which the Tribunal of Valencia refused even to admit competencias, asserting that its combined ecclesiastical arid royal jurisdictions rendered it the sole judge of all that concerned its officials, show that the old spirit still lingered and found expression whenever it dared. Carlos III, however, was even more assertive of the royal prerogative than his brother Fernando. We have seen his orders of 1763 concerning municipal and police regulations, which include the prohibitions of carrying concealed weapons and exporting money, in all of which familiars were wholly removed from the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. And in 1775, a competencia in Cordova caused him emphatically to order the inviolable observance of this decree. All this led to the change in the commissions of familiars as regards carrying arms, which was brought about in 1777 by the authorities of Aquila La Real and Seville refusing to register commissions issued by the tribunals of Toledo and Seville because they were not in accordance with the new regulations. In place, as of old, of blustering and coercing the magistrates, the Suprema collected from all the tribunals the formulas employed by them and framed a new one, phrased in a very different spirit and in accordance with the royal edicts. That the endless quarrels which we have been considering ought to be settled in an amicable manner was so self-evident that, from an early period, persistent efforts had been made to accomplish it, resulting in the competencia so frequently alluded to above. Originally it would seem that there was no established procedure, and that the Inquisition settled for itself all questions arising with the magistrates. After the first opposition had been broken down, these were not numerous, until the attribution of fuero to the officials, and the enormous multiplication of familiars and other unsalaried officers, gave occasion for collisions with the courts. The earliest attempt that I have met to prove a method of settlement is the cedula, issued about 1535 by the Empress Regent in the absence of Charles V, ordering that when there was a dispute about jurisdiction, the President and judges of the Royal Court should meet the Inquisitors and arrange matters harmoniously, so that it should not be known that there had been a difference between them. It was in conformity with this that, in 1542, when Joaquin de Tuenas was tried in Barcelona for the murder of Juan Bayel, a familiar, the Inquisitor, Miguel Puig, held a conference with the Regent and judges of the Royal Chancellery prior to the arrest, and the custody of the accused was settled without difficulty. It was impossible, however, to preserve peace between classes mutually jealous, 
and we have seen the troubles which Prince Philip endeavoured to settle by the cedula of May the 15th, 1545. This favoured the royal jurisdiction, and produced complaints from the Suprema, as when, in 1548, it represented to Charles V, that in Granada the judges had made the cedula a pretext to intervene in the business of the tribunal whenever one made a complaint, requiring the inquisitors to interrupt their work and come to the audiencia, where they were ordered not to proceed, and if this were disobeyed, the judges raised a great disturbance. All this would cease if the old rule were restored, that any one feeling aggrieved must appeal to the Suprema where he would get justice. Prince Philip's cedula of 1553 settled this as far as concerned matters of faith, but neither it nor the Castilian Concordia of the same year could prevent disputes over the immunities of the officials and familiars which the Inquisition was persistently endeavouring to extend. The Concordia, however, endeavoured to provide for the settlement of these by the process described above, which became technically known as competencia. It is remarkable that, in the Valencia Concordia of 1554, there is no such provision, but in that of 1568, for the Aragonese kingdoms, it appears in a slightly different form, that the regent of the Audiencia and the senior inquisitor should consult and endeavour to come to some agreement. If they could not do so, the regent was to send his side of the case to the Council of Aragon, and the inquisitor his to the Suprema, when the king would arrange how the matter should be decided. The two formulas were combined in practice and remained the established method of settling conflicts of jurisdiction. This should have produced peace, but we have seen that it only gave occasion for fresh subjects of discord. The inquisitors were restive under any restraint on their arbitrary methods, and already in 1560, a carta acordata of November the 14th warns them that they are not to proceed with censures against the judges when the latter offer competencias but are to send the papers to the Suprema and await the result, under a penalty of twenty ducats for every infraction of the rule. The inquisitors, however, avoided competencias as far as they could, and when obliged to concede them, the opportunity was taken of humiliating the royal judges and make them feel their inferiority in a manner most galling to men so tenacious of the respect due to position and so insistent on courtesy. When de Soto Salazar reports to the inquisitors of Barcelona that, when they had occasion to notify the lieutenant of the king or regent of the Audiencia, they sent a message to summon him, and then kept him waiting in the antechamber, and that sometimes they called the judges before them and scolded them without cause, we can readily appreciate the intensity of their hatred thus excited. So, when the Inquisition established its formula for competencias, they were sedulously framed to be as arrogantly insulting as possible. The first mandate inhibits peremptorily the judge from action and orders him to remit the case to the tribunal within 24 hours. If an arrest had been made, the prisoner is to be discharged on bail to present himself before the inquisitors, and any property seized or sequestrated is to be released. If the secular judge has any reason to allege to the contrary, he is to present himself in person or by procurator to the tribunal, which will render justice and all this is under holy obedience and the threat of major excommunication and a heavy fine. If there are any papers in the case, the scrivener is ordered to surrender them and the accuser or plaintiff is to appear within a time specified and receive justice, in default of which the case will be heard without him and without further notice. Then, if a reply is made to this, alleging reasons for not obeying, 
a second mandate is issued pronouncing them insufficient and ordering the first one to be obeyed within a specified time under the above penalties. If the judge then proposes the competencia, a mandate is sent to him reciting the previous ones and saying that to avoid troubling the higher powers, he is ordered to surrender all papers and suspend all action, or the excommunication and fine will be enforced on his person and property. The next mandate accepts the competencia, states that the tribunal is ready to forward its papers and orders the judges to send their side within twelve days, adding a threat of excommunication and fine if any additional testimony be taken in the case. All this is phrased in the most mandatory fashion as of a superior addressing a subordinate, and all these missives are ordered to be returned to the tribunal. If, after a competencia was formed, the familiar or official accepted the jurisdiction of the secular court, he was deprived of his commission. As we have frequently seen, there was no hesitation at any stage of the proceedings to excommunicate the judges, to anathematize them, and to lay an interdict on the city, followed by cessatio adivinus. In addition to the gratification of thus humiliating the magistrates, there was also in this truculence the object of rendering the process so offensive as to make them shrink from resisting the encroachments of the Inquisition. When this failed, the tribunal had abundant sources of annoyance in raising interminable questions of precedence and formalities, which were sometimes fought so bitterly and long as to virtually to supersede the original case. The points that could be raised were endless. In 1602, the Count of Benevente, then Viceroy of Valencia, issued letters ordering a conference over the arrest of Geronimo Falcon. The tribunal surrendered him, admitting that the case did not pertain to it, but demanded that the Viceroy and Chancellery should cancel the letters on their records, and on refusal, it excommunicated the regent. The matter was carried up to the Suprema and Council of Aragon, when the King decided that the letters must be expunged, and it was done in the presence of the Secretary of the Inquisition. The same humiliation had been inflicted on the Count's father, when he was Viceroy, and also on the Duke of Segorbe. This arrogance continued until Carlos III, in his decree of 1775, informed the Inquisition that the royal jurisdiction which it exercised was on precisely the same level as that of his judges and magistrates. There must be entire equality between them. All threats of communication and fines must be abandoned. There must be free interchange of papers, mutual courtesy, and no assumption of superiority. It was difficult for the tribunals to abandon the formulas which flattered their vanity, and a second command was necessary, issued in 1783, on the occasion of a prolonged conflict of the Valencia Tribunal with the Alcalde of Constantina. This finally produced obedience, and the Suprema transmitted the royal order to Valencia with instructions for its observance. End of Book 2 Chapter 4 Part 10 Recording by Algy Pug